Hey Rich Girls, Kirby here. Welcome to another episode of Rich Girls Guide. Welcome to part three of our four-part 401k series. What in the should we invest in within our 401k? We started off the series with our 401k overview episode, and last week we took a look at how the stock market actually works. Today, we are going to take a look at the individual investment options within our 401k. I'm going to be giving you the tips that I use for my own 401k. Before we dive in, I want to say a huge thank you for tuning in today. If you find this information helpful and want to support me so that I can make more content for you, please follow wherever you are tuning in right now. And a super quick reminder that you can view these in video format on YouTube and Spotify. Please note, this is not financial advice. This is simply my opinion and should be used for entertainment purposes only. Let's start by looking at the different available options within your plan. We are going to log into my 401k and I will actually show you exactly how I look at what my options are, how I evaluate those options, where I look to get more information on the individual funds and how I determine what my allocation will be. All right, so I am logged into my account right now. My 401k is through John Hancock, and this is actually my old 401k through a former employer. Within the next month or so, I will most likely be doing a rollover. Check out my episode 401 what? If you want an in-depth explanation on what a rollover is. But essentially, I can opt to do what is called a tax-free direct rollover from my 401k into my IRA. For now, let's look at my different investment options within my 401k. So the first page I am brought to has pretty much all of the like important high-level information. Uh, my total plan balance, which is the amount of money I currently have in my retirement account. Since this money is invested in the market, i.e. it's not just sitting in cash, the value is going to fluctuate day to day. If my investments within the plan do well, my account value will go up. If the investments within the plan do poorly, the value will go down. Two quick notes. First, even though this is a 401k with a former employer, meaning I cannot contribute to this account moving forward, I still want to keep the account invested until I figure out what I want to do with it. Just because I left my former job does not mean I have to cash this out or change my investments within the account. Second, even though I am not actively contributing to this account, I am still not really paying close attention to my balance going up or down. I feel like a lot of people get hung up on the balance once they stop contributing to an account, which is fair because it is easier to tell whether the balance is going up or down. However, if you are contributing enough to your accounts across the board, you are well diversified and have picked out funds according to your risk tolerance, which we'll go over both of these items later on in the episode, you do not need to fret over the exact dollar amount of your balance, especially while you are decades away from retirement. Okay, back to the site. The other important things to note on this first page are contribution amounts, which this is the amount I had been contributing to previously per paycheck. 
rate of return. This just means how much your account has grown through investment returns. This does not include account growth due to contributions. This is strictly your investment growth. If you remember from last week's episode, Stock Market 101, stocks and mutual funds will increase in value depending on how the company is performing. Or in the case of a mutual fund, it will depend on how the basket of companies held within the fund perform. So your mutual funds will increase in value when they do well, regardless of any contributions or lack of contributions you make into your account. Another way for investments to grow are through dividend reinvestment. Dividends are something that a company can choose to give to stockholders. Think of it as an incentive towards stockholders to continue holding this company's stock instead of selling it and buying a different company's stock. If the company is doing well or if they are a well-established company that knows they can rely on certain profit year over year, they tend to give out dividends to entice stockholders to hang on to their stock. Once the company gives you that dividend and your account, you can do one of two things. You can leave it as cash where it will sit static and really not grow in value, or you can reinvest that cash back into the stock or mutual fund. Hence the term dividend reinvestment. This is how compound growth works. And over time, your balance will continually get bigger if you opt into dividend reinvestment. So the rate of return can be useful after a period of time to make sure you are keeping somewhat in line with the market and your specific risk tolerance. Next, we are looking at investments, and this is where we are going to do a deep dive today. Let's go ahead and click on all options. And this should bring us to a list of all of the different available options we can invest in within my 401k. Now, because of the various rules and regulations surrounding 401ks specifically, typically you will have a small number of mutual funds that you are able to invest in. This means no individual stocks or what the plan might consider risky assets. Just as a reminder, a mutual fund is a basket of individual stocks, typically anywhere from 50 to 200 companies within one mutual fund. You are pooling your funds together with other investors in order for the mutual fund manager to purchase a wide number of stocks in order to meet a certain objective. What is this certain objective? Well, each mutual fund will have their own objective. Let's take a look at this very first mutual fund option. T. Rowe Pice Retirement 2065. All right, I went ahead and clicked on this fund and this page pops up with a ton of really useful information. We can see that they list their objective as seeking the highest total return over time, consistent with an emphasis on both capital growth and income. Uh, what the heck does this mean? This just means that they are including companies that have growth potential, Think smaller companies, uh, tech companies, companies that can like scale. And they are including more established companies that will give off income and dividends. Think like Verizon, IBM, established companies. Before we scroll down to look at the underlying holdings, aka the individual stocks or funds held within this fund, I want to dissect this statement. You've considered your risk tolerance and want your asset allocation to become more conservative over time, but still seeks growth after your retirement date. This statement right here, along with the actual name of the fund, Retirement 2065, 
tells me that this is a target date fund. A target date fund is a special type of mutual fund that will shift its investment strategy over time as you get closer to retirement. In this case, we have chosen a target retirement date in the year 2065. Every year or so, this fund will get slightly more conservative, less risky, more income funds versus growth funds to meet its stated objective. This is a true set it and forget it type of investment. Assuming the fund stays open the entire time you are invested in it, theoretically, you could pick out this one target date retirement fund that aligns with the year you want to retire and never make an investment change during your working career. Now, would I suggest that? It depends. Years ago, these types of funds would charge a hefty internal expense ratio, a fee that never hit your statement. It is something that the fund essentially takes out behind the scenes, and this is to cover their own expenses for managing the fund. However, in recent years, the fees have actually gone down quite dramatically, especially within 401ks. So let's take a look at the internal expense ratio before making any decisions here. So it looks like the expense ratio for this specific fund is 0.46%. That means for every $1,000 you have within your 401k, you will be paying T. Rowe Price $4.60 on an annual basis to manage that fund. Again, this is not something you are going to see on your statement. This is a behind the scenes fee that T. Rowe Price essentially charges for their services for this specific fund. Let's scroll down and look at the specific investments. So as with most target date funds, instead of owning a basket of individual stocks, this fund actually owns a basket of other funds. This is both good news and bad news. The good news is that you will be incredibly well diversified, AKA your money will be spread across a multitude of different companies, regions, potentially countries, and different sectors of the market. Think everything from healthcare to materials. The bad news is that each of these individual funds will have their own internal expense ratios. And you are likely to have overlap in the specific companies that each of these underlying funds hold. For example, T. Rowe Price Equity Index 500 and T. Rowe Price US Large Cap Core are likely to have very similar underlying holdings. Let's take a little looky-loo and find out. I'm just going to copy and paste both of these into Google and then navigate to their fund page on the T. Rowe Price website. All right, here we are for the T. Rowe Price Equity Index 500. And now we can see that the top 10 holdings, <laughs> all right, no surprise here, we have Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, which is just Google, Amazon, and NVIDIA. All right, now I'm going to do the exact same thing for T. Rowe Price, U.S. Large Cap Core. All right, let's scroll down to the top 10 holdings. And <laughs> shocker, we have more Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, NVIDIA, and Alphabet. I swear to God, I did not plan this. I just picked out the two funds that looked like they would have the most overlap and Obviously, I did a pretty good job. Now, just because these two funds have similar underlying holdings does not necessarily make this target date fund a bad fund. 
It just means we have some overlap in holdings. What we do want to look at is some similar options within the 401k, see how their performance compares and see how their expense ratios compare as well. Real quick, before we look at the different options, let's go over the difference between small cap, mid cap, and large cap funds. Cap, not to be confused with cap. Man, you capping. Is short for capitalization. And last week we learned that market capitalization is just the total number of outstanding shares a company has, AKA the number of stocks, times the price of the stock to give us the market capitalization of a specific company. If a fund categorizes itself as a large cap fund, that just means they are buying a basket of companies with large market capitalization. Large cap is considered anything over 10 billion. Mid cap is anything between 2 billion and 10 million, while small cap is generally between 250 million and 2 billion. Small, am I right? Many mutual funds will actually have these terms right in the name, which we'll see in a second. Okay, so as you can see, after we scroll past the target date funds, we actually have our funds categorized based on their sectors. Aggressive growth is going to be the most aggressive and risky funds available. These are meant for young investors, people with a long time horizon. That just means a longer period of time the money will be invested and those with a higher risk tolerance, meaning you are not spooked by seeing your account value fluctuate. By the way, just because you have a lower risk tolerance does not mean you need to steer clear of these funds completely. It just means you will want a smaller percentage of these funds within your portfolio. Next, we have growth, which is just a step down from the aggressive growth, but these are still primarily companies that have the potential to grow in value which means of course they also have the potential to go down in value or go out of business completely. Next we have growth and income. These funds will hold a mixture of both stocks, which makes up the growth portion and fixed income. Think bonds, CDs. By combining both stocks and fixed income, these funds have a unique ability to pivot based on the economy. If stocks are down one year while fixed income is up, the mutual fund manager, the person at the mutual fund company who makes the decisions on what is held within the fund, they can allocate their fund accordingly to try and take advantage of the increased value in fixed income. These also tend to be less risky than just a pure growth fund since the fixed income provides more stability and less risk. Again, typically. Last year was an interesting year for both fixed income and stocks alike, which means these funds probably didn't do so hot. Next, we have income funds. These funds will be primarily bond-based, meaning instead of having stocks as underlying positions, they are a basket of different bonds. Just like your stock-based funds, these income funds will have different objectives. Some will be more income-based while some are aiming for capital appreciation, increased value. Again, income generally means conservative, so I would only have a small portion of your account in these types of funds while you are still young. If you do want a sleeve of your portfolio to be more conservative due to age or risk tolerance, I would generally stick with a total return fund. These pick from a broad range of bonds across different countries and sectors and will again just be less risky. Finally, we come to the most conservative option cash. 
Typically, all 401k plans will have some kind of cash option that still pays you interest while providing you with a stable account value. The fund name may say something like money market, or in this case, U.S. government or federal, which just means the fund is either purchased directly into U.S. government issued securities or the securities are backed by the U.S. government which is theoretically the least risky asset available to any investor. This is typically going to give you the smallest return among any of your investments without giving you a negative return. You know, with the growth in the stocks, um, anytime that you have money in equity, while you have the potential to make more, you also have the potential to go negative. So something to keep in mind. This should be a very small sleeve in anyone's portfolio. Think of it in terms of this sleeve will most likely keep up with inflation, but really not do much more for you. Okay, so let's go through and compare two similar funds. I want to include a large cap value fund. Two options catch my eye, MFS value fund and Parnassus value equity fund. My plan has labeled them both as large cap value funds. So I know I am comparing apples to apples here. If I were instead to compare a large cap value to a small cap growth, that would be like comparing apples to oranges or apples to pomegranates. Aren't you glad I didn't say banana? <laughs> I got the dad jokes over here. Anywho, now we can look at three main comparison points, the expense ratio, the performance, and how long the funds have been open. Starting with expense ratio, we can see that MFS value fund has an expense ratio of 0.3%, while Parnassus has an expense ratio of 0.53%. While neither are crazy high, MFS value is definitely cheaper, almost half the cost. So we'll keep that in mind while we look at the performance. I personally like to compare the longest performance data point, which in this case is 10 years, along with the most recent one-year performance. I do not want to compare the since inception figure. This is because these funds were most likely not opened on the exact same date, meaning they will have spanned different periods of time, i.e. different market cycles. Again, we want to compare apples to apples. So the 10-year figures are giving us a good indication as to why the Parnassus fund is charging more on the back end i.e. their expense ratio. Their annual 10-year return has averaged 12.96%, while MFS has averaged 8.74% during that same time period. That's kind of a big difference, especially considering they are the exact same sector. That's like saying you are going to pay Parnassus an extra 0.23% in order to receive an extra 4.22% annually. Not a bad deal if you ask me. While the 10-year return will give us a good indication of their performance over a longer period of time, the one-year return is also very important. Fund managers will change over time, and companies as a whole have the potential to merge, downsize, etc. So looking at a more recent figure will tell you whether or not they have kept up with their past performance. Here we can see that MFS value has a one-year return of 0.2%, while Parnassus has stayed strong with 2.33%. Compared to each other, I think the choice is pretty obvious, regardless of the fact that one is more expensive. The only other thing I will take a quick look at is how long the funds have been opened. 
MFS Value Fund was incepted in 1996 and Parnassus was incepted in 2005. I am generally just checking to make sure that they are not a brand new fund that has only been open for a handful of years as those funds are obviously more risky since they do not have a long track record. Both of these pass the test for me. So it seems like most 401k plans are now giving you this in-depth information directly on their website, like mine does, where you can click on each fund and get a ton of information on their objectives, their performance, expense ratios, and how long they've been open. If for some reason your 401k is not providing you with that information, do not fret. Just copy and paste the name of the investment, for example, Invesco Small Cap Growth. I'm just gonna copy and paste that right into Google. And right away, the Invesco website and our friend Morningstar pop up on the first search page. Now you can go through your different investment options and pick out a few different funds that stick out to you. For me personally, I like to have a combination of large cap US growth funds, mid cap funds, growth and income funds, some value funds. Value companies are typically well-established, not so much a ton of growth potential, but they may be trading below their perceived market value. And then I like a small sleeve of international funds and a small sleeve of small cap funds. Obviously, everyone is going to be different in terms of how much risk they are willing to take. I personally am feeling a little risky right now. I still have a long time until retirement, so I would much rather take on like a more aggressive approach now. However, you may not want to have as much money in international companies, or you may want to keep a majority of your funds in the value sector, let's say. As long as you are not invested in just one or two niche funds, or you choose to go the target fund route, which is perfectly fine, you generally can't get up too much within a 401k. Generally. In determining your risk tolerance and how much you should be invested in stocks slash equity versus fixed income, I put together a cute little table, if you will. Now, this is just a quick rule of thumb that is absolutely not investment advice, just an example for you to ponder over. I am going to use myself as the example here. If I am under the age of 30 and I do not mind fluctuating account values, I am not risk averse, and I really want to grow my money as much as possible over the next four, five, six decades, I am going to keep my equities sitting at around 90 to 95% of my portfolio. That remaining five to 10% will be split between fixed income and cash slash money market. If I am between the ages of 30 and 40, I still don't mind the fluctuating account values for the most part, and I'm not super risk averse. I just wanna to continue to keep growing my money over the next few decades. I will most likely wanna keep my equity sitting around 80 to 85% of my portfolio, and the remaining 15 to 20% will be split between fixed income and cash slash money market. If I'm between the ages of 40 and 50, I still don't mind some market fluctuations in my portfolio, but I am getting a little bit more concerned about those large dips than I have been in years past. And I'm starting to become more risk averse. I will probably want to keep my equity exposure anywhere between like 60, 65% to 75%, just depending on how risk averse I am. 
That remaining 25 to 35% will be split between fixed income and cash slash money market. If I'm between the ages of 50 and 60, I am starting to count down the years to retirement and am very keyed into how much my portfolio is fluctuating, but I still want that portfolio growth over the next several decades. I am probably going to keep my equity sitting at around 55 to 65%, depending on how risk averse I feel at that time. Once I hit 65 plus, I will generally want to stay above 40% equity exposure and either at or below like 65% equity exposure. Obviously, this will depend greatly on the individual and the circumstances surrounding retirement and other income sources that are coming in, if any. If you made it this far, thank you for sticking with me. I know there's a lot of numbers and terms thrown around today. Hopefully you picked up on at least the one little nugget that will help you when making any 401k decisions. Next week, we're going to be answering my number one most asked question regarding 401ks and retirement in general. How do I know how much money I need to retire? Until then, feel free to binge on some past episodes. If you know someone who could use a kick in the pants, please feel free to send them this episode. If you have any questions, you can comment on YouTube, and if you want your question to be featured on an upcoming episode, ask away at the link in the show notes. Keep it rich, and see you next Monday! 